The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He's one of the most famous characters in literature, one of the handful who have transcended the limits of their pages and ascended to something more like a myth or legend or archetype. Robinson Crusoe, the castaway, or Sherlock Holmes, the detective, Harry Potter, the boy wizard. Reaching back further, we have Faust and Don Juan and Robin Hood and Don Quixote, King Arthur, Dorothy, Br'er Rabbit, Oliver Twist, Lady Macbeth, names of fictional characters who represent something, who signify something. For Christmas, we have the Grinch, whose heart is two sizes too small, until it's not. The Grinch has a predecessor, though, an obvious one. The Grinch, what a great name, by the way, Grinch. Grinch. Sounds like a greedy, pinched man. Grinch. The name of a genius at naming things. Think about names like that. Romeo is one. You, Romeo. Hello, Romeo. Or he's a Romeo. Well, Grinch is like that, too. You, Grinch. We say that all the time. He's a Grinch. Ah, I want to get a real tree this year, but my wife is being a Grinch about it. Names that can represent a type. Grinch is right up there. But when it comes to names of genius, our author today takes a backseat to no one. I'm talking, of course, about Charles Dickens, the 19th century dynamo, who created the great predecessor to the Grinch. And just listen to this name, Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge. What a glorious triumphant name, Ebenezer. Sounds so cold, like a drafty house, like a sneeze. Five E's in that word and four consonants. It's like the consonants can't keep out the wind, right? Not enough blanket to cover the body in that word, Ebenezer. Like a skeleton of a house, the thin frame that loses the heat and a perfect name for a ghost to say, which we will get to. And Scrooge. Scrooge, another ghost name, a howl. It's hard to separate it from miserliness in our understanding today. A screw twisting into the wood. Scrudge, like scrap and drudge, with an ooh in the middle, like boo. Scraps, boo, drudge, or grudge, ooze and drudge. It's a miser's name. The name Ebenezer Scrooge has a tremendous origin story. We travel to Scotland, where a man lives as a corn merchant and vintner. He sells wine and grain, food and drink, and he's as merry as that sounds. This is Edinburgh in the early 19th century. He's the great-nephew of a great man. His mother's uncle is Adam Smith, the author of The Wealth of Nations and The Theory of Moral Sentiment, a reputable man, an enlightened intellectual, one of Scotland's finest. Along comes our guy, let's call him S, for now, a generation or two later, who sells corn and wine, and he distinguishes himself at a church service by goosing a countess during a debate, grabbed the buttocks of a hapless countess 
as the Scotsman reports. They also note that he impregnated the odd serving wench. That's their phrase, not mine. But this was part of his lifestyle. Our man S. Rambunctious, licentious, the kind of man one suspects who has a lampshade on his head at the office Christmas party. A big spender, living for the moment, big loud laugh, the life of the party. So what happens next? He dies, he's buried, and a few years later, Charles Dickens comes to town on one of his lecture tours. While he's waiting, Dickens wanders into a cemetery. He sees the grave of our lampshade office party Scotsman, Ebenezer Scroggy, it says. That was the man's name, big reveal. That's his real name, Ebenezer Scroggy. And underneath, on the gravestone, underneath the name, it says, Mean Man. Dickens is haunted. He leaves the cemetery, but the cemetery doesn't leave him. He writes about it later. What must a man's life be like? to be called mean man by all those around. We try to think good of the dead. What's the phrase? We don't speak ill of the dead. We say, good father, good husband, loving wife, beloved member of the community. We don't say, mean man. You'd have to be a real Scrooge to get that name. Although Dickens can't think that, of course, because he hasn't invented Scrooge yet. But Scrooge is forming in his mind. We're just months away now from when he put pen to paper. Dickens writes in his notebook, To be remembered through eternity only for being mean seemed the greatest testament to a life wasted. End quote. I'm going to read that again. This is what he writes about seeing that grave. To be remembered through eternity only for being mean seemed the greatest testament to a life wasted. Look at that little shift. It's at the heart of Dickens's project. He didn't write, look at how much people resented him, or look how hated he was, but look at the wasted life. Ultimately, I'm jumping way ahead here, but the Christmas Carol story, A Christmas Carol, is not really about Scrooge succumbing to the hatred of others or being inspired by the kindness of others. That's the Grinch story, right? Being inspired by the kindness of others, he sees that he can't tamp down the Christmas spirit. That's the television show of the Grinch. I haven't checked the book. He tries to steal Christmas, but the next day, the people are singing anyway, and it moves him. They're willing to celebrate Christmas even without presents and trees and lights and roast beast. Their goodness, their Christmas cheer, literally expands the Grinch's heart. A Christmas Carol has some of this, too, but it's more about Scrooge's life, a life wasted. We'll see that coming up, but listen to Dickens here. To be remembered through eternity only for being mean seemed the greatest testament to a life wasted. He sees that grave with its gravestone, mean man, and he doesn't just think, wow, look at this evil. Buried here is the personification of badness, of evil. And he doesn't just think, 
People must have really hated him. They couldn't come up with one nice thing to say about him. They had to carve this on his tombstone, mean man. He thinks, here's a man who has wasted his life. Who says that being mean wastes your life? Dickens. Dickens does. Dickens, who grew up in the poorhouse, who tried his whole life to make things better for others, who tried to help children, who tried to reform laws, who set up a home for fallen women that tried to turn their lives around, which he managed for 10 years, who raised money for hospitals going bankrupt, and who constantly railed against the poverty and squalor affecting the working poor of London and beyond. He wanted change. He saw suffering and wanted to change it. Then he was tireless, writing and writing and writing, giving tours, playing cricket for hours, raising a million kids, I think it was nine, somehow exuding energy, and he sees a grave that says Ebenezer Scroggy, mean man. You can imagine him shuddering at that. You can imagine him saying, this is not how I want to be remembered, not how anyone should ever want to be remembered. And then he adjusts the last name. Scroggy is a little cute, right? Kind of like a children's character. Like Scrooge McDuck, maybe. Makes you giggle. Scroggy. Can't be too... Can't be... Must be a little bit harmless with a name like Scroggy. He lengthens it out. Dickens lengthens Scroggy out into something less adorable. Ebenezer Scrooge. Listen to how it lands. Not Scroggy. It's bouncing. Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge. You can hear the ghosts rattling their chains with that name. Howling like the wind. You can imagine Dickens in that dark cemetery in Edinburgh as he waits for his lecture to begin. The shivering trees, the wind, the cold reality of the tombstone. Mean man. A life wasted. As it turns out, Dickens messed that one up. (laughs) He misread the grave. It didn't say mean man. It said meal man. Because Scroggy was known for selling corn. So it was a nice little tribute to him. Meal man. (laughs) But let's not look too closely at the sources of inspiration here. Let's just look at the inspiration itself. Dickens thinking, here's a cold hard testament to a wasted life. What would it be like to show Ebenezer the error of his ways, to change him? What if he's visited by ghosts, the way I myself am haunted by this image of his life? What if we could see how this man got to be so mean, and what it meant that he was? And what if we made this all happen around Christmas time, that time of year when so many people get together with their families, and so many people are festive and are generous, and who also sometimes overlook the suffering of others, perhaps inadvertently, perhaps not. That's the Twin Dickens project, right? That's where he overlaps with the Grinch. On the one hand, Christmas brings out the best in everyone, the singing. When else do people just sing or walk around singing for people? The giving of gifts, another good thing, but it's also a time when people are especially blind that others may be less fortunate. Enter the ghosts to show us all what we are too blind to see. Or in this case, the tireless writer, the world-famous novelist, who's going to play that part himself, in a sense, 
and we're still absorbing the lesson almost two centuries later. We'll have more about this character, Ebenezer Scrooge, and his creator, Charles Dickens, today on The History of Literature. Mr. Cratchit! The fire's gone cold, Mr. Scrooge. Come over here, Mr. Cratchit. What is this? A shirt. And this? A waistcoat. And this? A coat. These are garments, Mr. Cratchit. Garments were invented by the human race's protection against the cold. Once purchased, they may be used indefinitely for the purpose for which they are intended. Cold burns. Coal is momentary, and coal is costly. There will be no more coal burnt in this office today. Mm. That's David Warner, who was on our show last week for his Uncle Vanya, playing Bob Cratchit. He's had an illustrious career, Mr. Warner, so maybe he doesn't need the help. But appearing back-to-back on the History of Literature podcast is hopefully something he considers a nice little feather in his cap. And puts him up there with such luminaries as Mike Palindrome, who I think was on three or four shows in a row back in the early days. That might be the record after your humble podcaster, who has appeared on 293 shows and counting. So get cracking, Mr. Warner. You're almost there. It was also George C. Scott, who is my favorite Scrooge. There have been some good ones. Charles Dickens himself was famous for his performances of A Christmas Carol. He was a one-man show traveling around England, playing something like 38 characters, apparently bringing them all to life. He was almost a professional actor before he turned to writing. Mr. Dickens, I'm sure that was good. Obviously, I haven't seen it. Patrick Stewart has done something similar in our lifetime with his one-man shows. Albert Finney played Scrooge, and oh, my, that's just getting started. Should we go through a list of people who've played Scrooge on the stage or on TV or film or radio. I'm going to just name a few. These are from Wikipedia. They have links to a lot of these if you want to check them out. They're close to 100. I won't give you all the names, just some of the more famous ones. Lionel Barrymore, for example. Mr. Potter himself. That's good training, playing Scrooge before you tackle Mr. Potter. Orson Welles played it once. Claude Rains, Ronald Coleman, Alistair Sim. Basil Rathbone, Jim Backus, who was in Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, Marcel Marceau, one of the quieter versions of Scrooge, Rich Little as W.C. Fields as Scrooge, (laughs) Walter Matthau, Henry Winkler, a.k.a. The Fonz, played him, George C. Scott, my favorite of all these for what it's worth, Mel Blanc took a turn in the Jetsons' Christmas Carol, Bill Murray in Scrooged. Some of these are inspired by like Rowan Atkinson, a.k.a. Mr. Bean and Blackadder, who played Ebenezer Blackadder. There's a point to this. Let me keep going. Michael Caine was in The Muppet Christmas Carol. James Earl Jones was in Bah Humbug. A slew of Broadway stars played Scrooge in the musical, including Tony Randall, Hal Linden, Roddy McDowell, F. Murray Abraham, Frank Langella, Tony Roberts, and Roger Daltrey. Cicely Tyson played Ebenita Scrooge. And Susan Lucci played Elizabeth, or Ebby, Scrooge. 
Vanessa Williams played Ebony Scrooge. Tori Spelling was Scroogeette. Nice to see women getting in the act here. Jack Palance took a turn. Kelsey Grammer, Jim Carrey, Matthew McConaughey, Michael Gambon, Christopher Plummer, Seth MacFarlane, and Guy Pearce. It's a powerful kind of storytelling that can generate all these adaptations. It's pretty simple, really. As simple as a fairy tale. We'll have more about that later. Man is a miser, ungenerous. Ghosts arrive to show him his past, his present, and his Christmases yet to come. He changes his ways. He decides not to waste his life. He learns a lesson. He lives a more generous life. It's a beautiful Christmas story. There's a Twitter controversy. Can I just rant for a moment about Twitter? Can we just do this? It brings out the worst in us. So let me get this off my chest. So there was a pretty famous comedy writer named Harris Whittles who died a few years ago. It was very sad that he passed away. He was a brilliant young prodigy, the funniest guy in the room, sort of the comedy writer's comedy writer. These are the guys who really impressed me. The ones that professional comedy writers say, oh yeah, yeah, that guy is funny. David Letterman talked about this when Robin Williams died, how he and George Miller used to how Letterman and George Miller used to sit in the comedy store watching joke tellers and writing their own little jokes. And then Robin Williams took the stage one night and it was like watching a hurricane blow through. And then Letterman came back the next night and Williams was there again. And the next night, and he did it again. And Dave and George, the joke tellers, the one-liners with little bits here and there trying to cobble together an act, thought, that's it, comedy is over. Robin Williams is blowing us all away. He's a force. There's a great New Yorker piece about George Meyer, who wrote for Letterman and for The Simpsons. And the stories about him were amazing. He was so valuable to The Simpsons that they wouldn't let him write scripts of his own. He just had to rewrite everyone else's. These are the best comedic voices in the country, or some of them, and he's punching up their scripts, and they would say that after one of their episodes aired, their friends and their family would call to congratulate them and say, I saw that you wrote that one. And then say, oh, there was a really funny part. They would say what it was, and then they'd say, I really love this line, and this line was so funny, and the writer of the episode would hang up the phone and say, all three of those were jokes that George Meyer wrote. I didn't write any of those. He added them. I'll never forget the story they told about George Meyer where the Simpsons writers had a gag going where a guy was delivering a sandwich. And they had this idea, the writers did, that he would be holding the sandwich up outside of the car, out of the, out of the driver's side window. And maybe he, he drove under a wire that was low. And he was holding the sandwich in such a way, it was kind of awkward, and the wire was going to slice the sandwich. So he had to be positioning this sandwich in this awkward way. And then the sandwich hits the wire, slices it clean through, and that was the gag. That was the joke. And George Meyer stopped by, listened to what they were saying, what they were working on, and he said, what if it cuts off his arm? And they all all just looked at each other and said, that's better. (laughs) Why didn't we think of that? Another great New Yorker piece was about Harold Ramis watching Bill Murray and realizing that he has a kind of universal humor that Harold Ramis would never have, that he's inherently funny in a way. Will Ferrell, another guy people talk about like that. Anyway, Harris Whittles 
wrote for Parks and Recreation and had this reputation as just the funniest guy, the best joke writer, the one who saw life in the oddest way, the slanted view that leads to comedy, who could write the best scripts, who invented the term humble brag. And sadly, he wrestled with addiction issues and he ended up dying very young of an overdose, age 30. Tremendously sad. And once in a while, People will tween out a story or a remembrance or some joke or some tribute because they miss their friend. And it's great for people to hear these little jokes and anecdotes because the guy just lived in a kind of funny way, like John Belushi or Chris Farley, not as famous, not as public, maybe a little more cerebral than that. The humor, the stories about him are things that he said or thought or or the slanted way that he looked at reality. So this guy who knew Harris tweeted out the other day, I woke up today thinking about Harris Whittles telling me once that he remembered the difference between stalactite and stalagmite by saying stalagmites might fall on your head, only it's the opposite. Which is kind of funny, right? To have a mnemonic that you then have to correct to be something else. (laughs) Your mnemonics are usually supposed to help you, not make you remember something else in addition. And people tweeted responses like, oh, I'll never get tired of Harris stories, and oh, the law still stings, or that reminds me of the time that Harris said, dot, 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 right? Nice responses. I know this is just Twitter, people, but it is how people are communicating. It's how they're connecting. We're in a weird world now where strangers come together, exchange thoughts, and move on to the next thing. So then, this is, we're talking about Christmas here. People are finding each other on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. That's where they're exchanging Christmas spirit, if they have any. We're not going to the mall these days. We're not going to the town square. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're moving away from those things anyway. This year in particular, we're doing this all online. That's why I'm talking about it. Okay. Then I'm not even going to talk about political Twitter, which is a horrible cesspool, a pit of lies and distortions and willful misunderstandings and insults and straw man arguments. It's the worst of humanity. I'm talking about the one place where Twitter could maybe do some good. Just let people share some fun memories of an old friend. Pass along some good cheer. So I'm reading the comments to this tweet. I didn't see any outright scandals. Horrible people, you know. Oh, F. Harris. Or, oh, shut up. Or, I'm glad he died. Or anything like that. The internet produces a lot of jerks who are in pain and trying to get noticed. This isn't a story about that. It's a story about all the people who jumped in on the memory of Harris and said, here's how I remember the difference. Stalactite is on the ceiling and there's a C in it and stalagmite is on the ground and there's a G in it. Or stalactite holds tight. Stalagmite might trip you. I read those and I just felt, uh, I don't even know. What to say? How depressed that made me. Ah, for some reason those comments were worse to me. The cranks, the trolls, the villains, the monsters, those people you have to ignore. It's an ugly side of humanity. It's people at their worst. But they're easily dismissed. It's these others that I worry about who read a tweet about a funny thing 
that a comedy writer once said, and is delivered as a fond memory, a kind of tribute. And here people are jumping in with some thoughts about themselves. Me, 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 me. Here's how you should remember the difference. Here's an easy tip. As if the world needs that comment on that thread. Not sorry for your loss, or we lost a great one, or, oh, here's a weird mnemonic I have to share. I was backwards about this one. But just... Oh, I see you're talking about stalactites and stalagmites. Here's my way of remembering the difference. I read those comments. Ah, I just think, why am I ever on the internet? Internet, ever. Why do I spend any time at all doing this? Now, I shouldn't really talk, I suppose. I shouldn't be the one to talk about talking. What am I doing here but sharing my thoughts? Me, 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 me. Who cares what Jack Wilson thinks? So I guess I'm guilty of this too. Maybe we all need to do better. Maybe we all need to rethink how we spend our time in 2021. Me, 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 me. My thought, my thought, my thought, my thought. When did we get so desperate to have our say, to chime in, to blather on? And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet. I am not just saying this because I want to complain about Twitter. It's not that easy, folks, because here's the thing. I hate the comments on Twitter, just like I hate the comments on articles. My heart sinks when I see how little thought goes into them. And yet, I love them too. I absolutely love them. I value them. Whenever I read an article I disagree with, I look for the comments to see if other people have pointed out the errors. I never post myself. But I am comforted when I see that logical holes or missed facts or unfounded assumptions have been roundly criticized by my fellow human beings. I get a surge of excitement and pride and just feeling like all is right with the world. And when I look for that link for the comments and it's not there because the website has turned off the comments, talking about like a news website now, when they've turned off their comments, I think, you cowards. You cowards, you couldn't take the heat. The websites would probably say, well, we got tired of the spam and the misogyny and the conspiracy theories and, I don't know, near criminal activity on there. The slanders, the slurs, the hate, the anonymous incitements. Fair enough. But I also see a lot of newspaper columnists who grew up in a world where newspaper columnists, op-ed writers, could just sit in their little perch typing away drinking champagne and eating bonbons and going out for steak dinners with their sources, living off the expense account and never facing the consequences for their ridiculous hot takes. That's the world that ended with the internet. There are a ton of smart people out there who are smarter than the op-ed writers who previously got to pretend that there was no one smarter and the hot takes got cold fast. So guess what? This relates to Dickens today, but it's really going to relate to Chekhov in our next two Thursdays, Three Sisters and the Cherry Orchard. So let's save the discussion for then. This was my little Grinch period. (laughs) The Grinch segment of the show. I'll have some thoughts about having thoughts. On Thursday, yes, the irony is intended. And yes, I know that probably doesn't meet your definition of irony. I know, I know, I know. Me, 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 me. We are off the rails. Let's change gears.
Okay, I guess this is allowed since we're this close to Christmas. Go ahead, Paul. Take us into your winter wonderland, your candy cane forest, your sugary snow meadow. We will all have a wonderful Christmas time this year, won't we? Even though we should all be staying home, staying safe, and living healthy, we're going to turn things around soon. And so am I here on the History of Literature podcast. And for now, let's take a quick break, come back with a listener email, and then finish our story of Charles Dickens and the creation of the greatest Christmas character since Santa Claus. That only comes this time of year, simply having a wonderful Christmas time, simply having a wonderful Christmas time, the choir of June. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. This one comes from Charlotte. Subject. Thanks, Jack. Hi, Jack. Thank you for the podcast, Jack. That's a lot of Jack, indeed. I was actually surprised to see it spelled that way, with an E. After hearing, having heard you say it so many times in the podcast, I expected a traditional J-A-C-K, or a more surprising J-A-K-E, but J-A-C-K-E. I didn't know it could be spelled like that. So, not only are you telling me all these amazing stories about people writing stories and their stories, but you're also expanding my knowledge about names. Well, Charlotte, let me pause here and say that I hope to have a little more knowledge about names. Oh, why don't we go ahead and do it right now, right in the middle of the letter. We talked about the change from Scroggy to Scrooge, but what about the name Ebenezer? Where does that name come from? Is it as good as its sound? And what happened to that name? As it turns out, the name Ebenezer comes from the Hebrew. The words Eben for stone and Ezer for help. Not sure I'm pronouncing those correctly. It appears in the Old Testament. Israelites were worshiping some local pagan deities. Oh boy, here we go. If you've read the Bible or remembered the stories from Sunday school, you'll know what's going to happen here. This is like Chekhov's famous gun. If it's on the wall in the first act, it better go off before the end. When the Israelites are worshiping local pagan deities, <laughs> the gun is on the wall. Let the thundering begin. And in fact, 
This was when the Philistines were crushing them and they had lost the Ark of the Covenant. So they're turning to the local pagan deities. But that's only digging the hole you're in deeper, isn't it? Samuel prayed for intervention and got the advice to worship the Lord and get rid of the foreign gods. And he told his friends about it, and they did, and it worked. They defeated the Philistines, and Samuel set up a commemorative stone. Or as the Bible says, Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. End quote. The Ebenezer Stone, a symbol of God's help. Christians sometimes refer to a cross or the Bible itself as an Ebenezer, a reminder that God loves us and God is helpful and God is here. I'm not sure whether Dickens had this meaning in mind, but it works, doesn't it? For Scrooge and A Christmas Carol, a reminder that God loves us and is helpful and God is here, at least Scrooge at the end. On the other hand, the sound of it is the opposite of that. The sound is like a screech, a villain, like the skeezics, Ebenezer, sleazy greed. And guess what? Although the name was common, fairly common in the English-speaking world in the 17th and 18th and early 19th centuries, it had a great falling off post-Dickens. It's like Adolf after World War II. Not many kids named Adolf running around in the 50s and 60s. In 1841, the UK census listed almost 5,000 male Ebenezers. Did I say U.S.? UK census. Almost 5,000 male Ebenezers and 75 females. They were even naming girls Ebenezer back in the day. And today, in 1996, seven babies got that name. In 2000, there were three which is a little strange because Scrooge is a great story of redemption. It has a happy ending. It's a reminder of the joy of Christmas. But that's not what stands out. Ebenezer Scrooge changes, but he doesn't catch up to Tim and Bob. Those are two names that aren't struggling. They're good the whole time. They don't need to be shocked into goodness like Ebenezer. Ebenezer is an old miser's name who eventually comes around like the Grinch. But the bulk of the story is the Grinch as a green, wicked creature. And Scrooge is the story of a guy who doesn't want to burn coal because it's expensive. Did you catch that in the clip we played, by the way, with George C. Scott? How this is about a wasted life as much as just being mean? Who suffers when Scrooge doesn't pay Bob Cratchit much? Well, Bob and his family do. Their Christmas goose is small. But who suffers when Scrooge doesn't want to put coal on the fire? Scrooge suffers too. He's not letting himself live. He's going to be cold without that coal burning. Okay, back to the email. Charlotte, she says, Perhaps I should tell you where I come from, so this might be less weird. I'm from France. I'm having a master's in American literature in Paris, and it's honestly the best thing ever. Your podcast has been so helpful to me. That's five O's, people. Five O's in that, so that's pretty helpful. Not only for the information provided, 
This is back to Charlotte's email. But also for the time you made me feel less lonely during my daily walks in the forest. I started listening to the show during the first lockdown here in France, March 2020, and it really helped me feel I wasn't losing track of what I was supposed to do. Learn about all those amazing writers. I'm also working on Lolita for my dissertation with a stylistics approach, and I'm always so happy whenever I hear you refer to it. Also, here are some of my favorite episodes. Gertrude Stein. This one actually helped me a lot, getting familiar with her before a whole class on her. The Flowers of Evil by Baudelaire. I can't forget the way you said Les Fleurs du Mal. Ha ha. French is hard to tame. Ezra Pound, and so many more. Thanks again, Jack. Charlotte. Well, Charlotte, thank you for the email, and yes, I am laughing with you. I don't pronounce French very well. You are very kind to say that French is hard to tame. That's a polite way of speaking about my failure, and I appreciate it. I would love to be able to pronounce French correctly. It's a great dignified language, the language of diplomacy, and I have a kind of Secret love for Napoleon Bonaparte that I feel very guilty about. And you all know about my love for Proust, which I don't feel guilty about. Which We're going to have another installment in 2021. Mike P. is coming back to discuss Volume 2. Hey, Mike is a Francophile. <laughs> Unapologetic Francophile. The Manhattan snob in him finally met his match with Paris. It was the one place that gave him a chance to feel inferior in some way. I grew up in the lower ranks, the lowest rung on the ladder, out in the sticks. But Mike grew up at the top, Manhattan itself. Not Brooklyn, not New Jersey, not upstate New York. The Isle of Manhattan. Can't get better, can't get higher. And that's how he lived his life until he went to Paris. I might be mythologizing this a bit. I wasn't there to see it. <laughs> I'm putting, recreating this in my mind. My image of Mike in Paris is one of a man on his knees, the lifelong snob bowing down to the people who outsnobbed him. The culture, the food, the energy, the taste for fine art, the refinement, the literature. Suddenly, he not only had inspiration, which Manhattan provided, he had an aspiration, thanks to Paris, or as they say in Paris, Paris. But for me, nope, none of that. I love Paris too, but I am an outsider. I get it. They don't want me. Just as I am a perpetual outsider to French, the French language, my tongue and my brain just refuse to cooperate. I think it's because the French language rejected me long ago sent me running into the arms of Italian, my mother Italian, my adopted mother Italian, and the embrace by Italian was a very warm one indeed. I resented that mother who rejected me. Maman, or whatever they say in France, I had my mamma, and I'm good with that. How do you say it? Les fleurs du mal? Or is it les fleurs du mal? Don't at me. If I mispronounce Italian, let me know. If you ever hear that happen. If I mispronounce French, feel sorry for me. Feel some pity. Light a candle and pray for my soul for all the sins against the gods of scheduling I must have committed for them to have denied me the chance to learn Spanish and German and Latin and French when I was in college. Tried every single one of those languages. Got rejected by all of them. And while you're at it, use that candle 
to light a firecracker on my behalf in honor of the Italian that I did learn and that has launched so many colorful sparks into my night sky. Okay, beautiful little email from Charlotte. Charlotte in Paris in the forest, walking through, thinking about literature, Lolita. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Let's take one more break and then return with our celebration of Ebenezer Scrooge. I'll be home for Christmas You can plan on me Please have snow Okay, so here's what I'd like to do. I'll tell you a little about Dickens at the time he wrote A Christmas Carol and what it was like for him to write it. Then we'll hear the start of the story, because people often see a version of this, but we forget just how good Dickens is at setting up a tale, at giving us characters, how vividly he breathes life into people. Always good to return to Dickens' prose. He's really astonishingly good at making characters come to life. He's like a movie maker before there were movies. So Dickens was born in 1812 in Portsmouth. He lived in Chatham for a few years, and when he was 10, he moved to London, where he lived for the next 38 years, until he retired, sort of semi-retired to a country home. It was a middle-class life, but barely. When he was a child, it was a fairly new development for his family to be in the middle class, and they had a way of blowing it. One of his grandfathers was a domestic servant, and the other was an embezzler. His father, John, was a clerk in the Navy pay office, and he made a pretty good salary there, but he spent money faster than he could earn it, and he mismanaged money as well as his life. And when Dickens was 12, they had to pull Charles out of school and send him to work in a factory because John had been sent to prison for debt. Things didn't go well for Charles after that. It was a traumatic experience a lifelong wound he sought to heal, and he always had sympathy for the working class and the children who were suffering through no fault of their own and the conditions in which they lived. On a more personal note, he seems to have had a kind of antagonism against his mother for this incident, and some have argued that it affected his relationships with women afterwards. Even after the family was able to pull John out of debtor's prison, his mother, Dick, Charles's mother, wanted Charles to stay at work in the factory. His father said, no, let's send him back to school. And the mother said, no, the factory, that's the place for him. You can see some seedlings in this story for the man Dickens became. And we'll see this later with the reception of A Christmas Carol, in fact, where he's devastated by the financial outcome of the book. But let's save that for later and move on for now. At 15, Dickens left school to be a clerk for a lawyer, or a solicitor, as it was called, and then he became a reporter, covering Parliament and the courts. He loved journalism and hated the law and Parliament. He fell in love and was turned down because he was a lousy prospect at his young age, which fueled his desire to succeed. 
He was an actor. And then when he was 21, he transformed his journalism into the fiction that would save his life. Save his life? Maybe. <laughs> I've changed his life is what I meant to say. Might have saved his life, too. He started writing stories and descriptive essays, and within months, he became the most popular author around. The Pickwick Papers came out. He got a job as an editor of a monthly magazine, and he put Oliver Twist in the magazine in serial fashion. It's like those it's like those actors like Robert Redford or Orson Welles who want to direct a movie, and the producer says, fine. The money people say, okay, great. Go ahead and direct as long as you're in it. You can direct it, star, as long as you agree to star in the movie. You can edit the magazine, Mr. Dickens, but hey, how about serializing a novel for it, too? Huge success, as we know. Dickens got married, had the first of his nine surviving children, had a second child, and then he went to that Edinburgh tour I told you about, and now we're almost caught up to our story. A few more novels had happened in the meantime, and more success, a five-month tour of America. We skipped over that. He was famous, successful, wealthy, although there is no more precarious perch than a wealthy son who remembers the bankruptcy of his father. He didn't want to be stingy, Charles. He wanted to be big-hearted. He wanted to help people. He had a strong social conscience. He hated Parliament for not doing more to help he hated the law for being stuck in its bizarre ways. So it's not like he wanted to retire from society and live a safe life counting his money. But he knew that if he overextended himself, he could face ruin. He was about 30 years old when he took that trip to Edinburgh and saw that gravestone of the meal man, Scroggy, who he thought was recorded in history as mean man, and it lit a match in him. He fused it with Christmas he had always loved Christmas. He remembered the Christmas trees and Christmas pantomimes of his youth. In the Pickwick Papers, his first novel, he wrote about the joys of Christmas. He loved Christmas in London. He loved the spirit of it, what it did to the city, how it transformed people. And then in 1875, a friend of Dickens, John Forster, wrote a biography of Dickens. We'll be quoting from this later. There's a passage I want to talk about now that struck me. Dickens wrote Forster a letter and signed it, quote, Let's hope we might enjoy 50 more Christmases at least in this world and eternal summers in another, end quote. And so and I think that says something about Dickens, the way he measures time, measures the world, measures the good things in the world. 50 more Christmases. How many more Christmases do we get? Isn't that the measure of a lucky life if we get a lot more Christmases and eternal summers? That's a very UK thing. <laughs> Enjoy your summer, all five days of it or whatever you get. Okay, so Dickens was signed up to write installments. And this is an underrated part of serialization, by the way. Serialization is often blamed for novels being too long, 19th century American novels being too long or too unruly or too untamed, to use Charlotte's word, too verbose, paid by the word, had to fill the pages or didn't plan it out ahead and was kind of winging it or changed the ending to suit the public. That's the kind of thing that a critic or a sensitive reader today might notice about novels that had originally been serialized. 
Dickens himself used to complain about it. He said, oh, how do you get all these characters and all these plots? How does a juggler keep all these balls in the air? It's hard enough for a novelist to pull it off in the best of circumstances. And when you're trying to do it with a monthly number, as he called it, it's even harder. He said he would concentrate on the general purpose and design. He promised to do that because although we criticize these books as if they're between two covers and lumpy and have digressions and peaks and valleys at the wrong time and they get confusing and they get sensationalistic, those are all valid criticisms and we can attribute those to serialization and we're right. But what we don't always think about is the effect that serialization had on the author. James Joyce might disappear for a few years before coming out with Ulysses. In the meantime, he's agonizing over each sentence and each word. He's getting things as right as he can. We take that for granted now. Again, with an analogy, a band today that's successful might spend a year in the studio, even more, going through the tracks, perfecting them. The Beatles recorded their first album in a single day. One day. All the songs, back to back to back and so on. Other bands do something similar. When you're peak Radiohead, that's great. Take all the time you need. We look forward to hearing the results. But when you're unknown, when you don't have a hit to your name, don't have an album, nobody knows who you are, you're up and coming, you might not have that much time in the studio. Studios are expensive. I don't know how different things are today. What I'm talking about is more something probably more applicable 20 years ago or more. Maybe people have home studios and can do things more cheaply with today's technology. You can do it all on a laptop. But in any case, follow me through this analogy. When you're an unknown band, you might have to crank things out, but that's okay. You've got energy. You've got spontaneity. You've got songs to get off your chest. You'll live with some infelicities because you're new. You're also free of expectations and criticism. You're just looking forward to making a splash. And then as you mature, the mistakes bother you and you have a sound you want to capture. And suddenly you're also dealing with expectations. Everyone who heard the last album and wants the next one to be as good or better. And suddenly the band insists on spending a year making an album so they can get the sound they want out there. I know people don't really make albums as much anymore either. (laughs) They make tracks. I'm such a dinosaur. Do I have to feel bad about that even at Christmas? Maybe I could be a Christmas dinosaur. Have pity on me. I'm a Christmasaurus. Okay. Just to finish this up, Dickens would sign up to serialize a novel and suddenly he's on the hook for a bunch of pages. Maybe twice a month. And sometimes he'd have two of these novels going at once. So he's peak Dickens. He's famous. He can disappoint the public. There's a lot at stake. This is like James Joyce writing Ulysses or Radiohead recording Kid A or something. That's the point of career he's at, of his career that he's at. Everyone is waiting for the next great Dickens. Only James Joyce and Radiohead get the time they need to get things right. They can delete and start over. They can take a day off if they need it. They can throw out a week's worth of work. Dickens doesn't have that luxury. 
He can't take a day off. He's writing and writing and writing, and it goes straight into print, and then it's done. It's out there. It's available for all to love and admire or hate and disparage. It's impressive. Not as impressive as a Christmasaurus, perhaps. But not everyone gets to have a long neck capable of extending down a chimney and a walnut-sized brain, which makes us Christmasauruses happy and dumb and giving and our striking red and green reptilian skin. The Christmasaurus. Only Jack Wilson gets to play the part of a Christmasaurus. Sorry, Mr. Dickens. Anyway, Dickens was signed up to write his book, Martin Chuzzlewit. He was making the deadlines for that, and a new idea came into his head. That guy Scroggy, the mean man. What if he wasn't Ebenezer Scroggy, but Ebenezer Scrooge? What if we make it a Christmas story? What if we introduce a few ghosts? And even though Dickens is writing Chuzzlewit, he makes this kind of his side project, the one he turns to when he gets a moment. This Christmas story, he's got cooking. But even though it's a side project, he knows what he's got. He knows gold when he sees it. He knows how good this is. Listen to this description, again, from his friend Forster. Quote, It, meaning A Christmas Carol, was the work of such odd moments of leisure as were left him out of the time taken up by two numbers of his Chuzzlewit. And though begun with but the special design of adding something to the Chuzzlewit balance, I can testify to the accuracy of his own account of what befell him in its composition. This is the good part. This is where he talks about how it was for Dickens when he was thinking about this story. Listen to this part of the quote. With what a strange mastery it seized him for itself, how he wept over it and laughed and wept again and excited himself to an extraordinary degree, and how he walked thinking of it fifteen and twenty miles about the black streets of London, many and many a night after all sober folks had gone to bed. And when it was done, as he told our friend Mr. Felton in America, he let himself loose like a madman. Hmm, end quote. Ah! Can you believe that? The idea... So here's a genius who's busy. He's writing a novel. He's, he's already got commitments to this novel. And he's got this side project that he loves. This side project that exerts a strange mastery over him. So much so that he wept and laughed and wept again. Think about what it must have been like. I mean, it's hard enough to think about what it's like to hear the Scrooge story for the first time. Even children already kind of know A Christmas Carol before they even see it for the first time, right? It's such a part of our culture. Imagine if it never existed before and you were the writer and it was all coming into vision in your head and you could see what was happening. Mm. And it makes you cry. It makes you laugh. And it makes you cry again. And you're walking around London after everyone else has gone to bed thinking about this story. It's incredible. Okay, let's hear how it begins. Once again, we all know the story. We've seen it in movies. But hearing Dickens's prose is, at least for me, terribly exciting. It starts with a winning preface, a note from Dickens to his public. Preface. 
I have endeavored in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. May it haunt their houses pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. Their faithful friend and servant, C.D. December 1843. I love this little preface. Good old C.D. Our friend. Let's hear how this begins. Stave 1. Let me pause there. Why is this not chapter 1? Why is this stave 1? Well, stave is a reference to the parts of a carol, the musical movement of a song. Dickens was proud of the musicality of the composition of A Christmas Carol, how it had five parts, like a song, and a turning point, and a rise and fall, and the parts were all in balance. This is... Conceiving this and executing it fired his imagination on those walks through London. This wasn't a monthly number. This wasn't going to suffer from coming out in parts. He could design it all at once. It was a lot shorter for another thing. He could design it and publish it all with a kind of unity he didn't always get a chance to affect with his serialization. One of the things about serialization is you have to have some rising and falling within each monthly number, right? You can't have a whole month go by without some big action happening, some big plot points moving forward. So this one, he could keep all in his mind at once and write it all with a unity and a kind of singularity that he didn't always get to do. So the five parts, of course, are stave one, Marley's ghost, then the three spirits, we know them as past, present, and future, then what he calls the end of it, which is the reformed Scrooge, the happy ending. Okay, we will read now from the very beginning, the opening of A Christmas Carol, stave one, Marley's ghost. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend, and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral, and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. If we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, there would be nothing more remarkable in his taking a stroll at night, in an easterly wind, upon his own ramparts, than there would be in any other middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot, say, St. Paul's Churchyard, for instance, 
literally to astonish his son's weak mind. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood years afterwards above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge, Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose. No pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast of the advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say, with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was o'clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on would lug their owners into doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said, No eye at all is better than an evil eye, dark master. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked to edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance, was what the knowing ones called nuts to Scrooge. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighboring offices like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole and was so dense without that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that nature lived hard by and was brewing on a large scale. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond a sort of tank was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. 
but he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room, and so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. A Merry Christmas, Uncle! God save you! cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. Bah! said Scrooge. Humbug! He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome, his eyes sparkled, and his breath smoked again. Christmas a humbug, uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I am sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned the nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What right have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment, said, Bah! again, and followed it up with humbug. Don't be cross, uncle, said the nephew. What else can I be, returned the uncle, when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas! Out upon Merry Christmas! What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older but not an hour richer? A time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of months presented dead against you? If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. Uncle, pleaded the nephew. Nephew, returned the uncle sternly. Keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it, repeated Scrooge's nephew, but you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then, said Scrooge. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say, returned the nephew. Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come round. Apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely, and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave, and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good, and I say, God bless it. The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded. Becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked the fire and extinguished the last frail spark forever. Let me hear another sound from you, said Scrooge, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir, he added, turning to his nephew. I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Don't be angry, uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. Scrooge said that he would see him. Yes, indeed he did. He went the whole length of the expression and said that he would see him in that extremity first. But why? cried Scrooge's nephew. Why? Why did you get married? 
said Scrooge, because I fell in love. Because you fell in love, growled Scrooge, as if that were the only one thing in the world more ridiculous than a Merry Christmas. Good afternoon. Nay, uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as a reason for not coming now? Good afternoon, said Scrooge. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon, said Scrooge. I am sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel, to which I have been a party, but I have made the trial an homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humor to the last. So a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon, said Scrooge, and a Happy New Year. Good afternoon, said Scrooge. His nephew left the room without an angry word, notwithstanding. He stopped at the outer door to bestow the greetings of the season on the clerk, who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge, for he returned them cordially. There's another fellow, muttered Scrooge, who overheard him. My clerk, with fifteen shillings a week, and a wife and family, talking about a merry Christmas, I'll retire to Bedlam. This lunatic in letting Scrooge's nephew out, had let two other people in. They were portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold, and now stood with their hats off in Scrooge's office. They had books and papers in their hands and bowed to him. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe, said one of the gentlemen, referring to his list. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years, Scrooge replied. He died seven years ago this very night. We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner, said the gentleman, presenting his credentials. It certainly was, for they had been two kindred spirits. At the ominous word liberality, Scrooge frowned and shook his head and handed the credentials back. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, said the gentleman, taking up a pen, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts, sir. Are there no prisons? asked Scrooge. Plenty of prisons, said the gentleman, laying down the pen again. And the union workhouses, demanded Scrooge, are they still in operation? They are. Still, returned the gentleman. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigor, then, said Scrooge. Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course, said Scrooge. I'm very glad to hear it. Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude— returned the gentleman. A few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it is a time, of all others, when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? Nothing, Scrooge replied. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone, said Scrooge. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it. 
and decrease the surplus population. Besides, excuse me, I don't know that. But you might know it, observed the gentleman. It's not my business, Scrooge returned. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue their point, the gentleman withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labors with an improved opinion of himself. Hmm. There's so much there to love. The great description of Scrooge, the energy of seeing him in these interactions, the hints that there will be ghosts here and that that's okay. Hamlet's father was a ghost and we all respect Shakespeare. And this part at the end. If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. This tapped into a great debate at the time with Darwin and a general belief in progress on the one hand, things getting better, progress getting being made, evolution improving things, and Thomas Malthus on the other. Malthus believed that improvements would lead to a better life, which would in turn lead to population growth, which would lead to a fall in living standards. He thought population multiplied geometrically and food only arithmetically, so a prosperous society would end up with more mouths to feed than it could handle. His books came out around 1800, 1810, 1820. These were the, these were the thoughts in the air when Dickens was being dragged off to the workhouse himself, one of those mouths that needed feeding. And you can see where someone like Scrooge would have had a good 20 years or so of letting that belief in population growth set in. Aren't I taxed already? Aren't there institutions? Don't I have my own concerns to worry about? And Dickens is saying, no, Scrooge, you don't. No, you don't. We don't have that luxury. The poverty is all around us. The laws are insufficient. We can't just say, well, that's what Parliament is for, because Parliament is filled with corruption and ineptitude. It's up to us. Or it will continue. So the book comes out. And in some ways, it's a huge success. It still is, right? I mean, we know Oliver Twist and David Copperfield and Great Expectations and Bleak House. And Dickens is admired for these and his other novels, too, A Tale of Two Cities and so on. But A Christmas Carol is different. It's transcendent. A Christmas Carol is a height very few authors ever reach. And yet, when it came out, and even though it was successful, Dickens was miserable. About the publication and the aftermath, Forster tells us the story of the publication day. Dickens was disappointed. It was a huge success. The first edition of 6,000 copies sold out on the first day. Future editions were quickly commissioned. Everyone loved the story, critics, readers, everyone, and yet Dickens was miserable. Such a night as I have passed, he wrote to Forster, talking about his misery. The accounts for A Christmas Carol had come in. He had only made 230 pounds. He had set his heart and soul on a 1,000 pounds from the book. Now he couldn't pay the year's bills. He was full of intolerable anxiety and disappointment. The problem seems to have been an issue with his publishers and the pricing. Somehow they priced it wrong or Dickens's share had been negotiated wrong or something. He didn't make enough. Not what he expected. And so it was a disappointment. There's something a little ironic here, isn't it? Isn't there? Isn't it a little Scrooge-like to be measuring the success of this book based on money alone? But Dickens was like a business, a brand, an enterprise. He had children and expenses and charities and all kinds of need for money. He wasn't a miser. He made a lot to spend a lot. 
There's a difference there. But others urged him to come to his senses. How can you be disappointed in this book? (laughs) Blessings on your kind heart, a friend wrote to him. You should be happy yourself, for you may be sure you have done more good by this little publication, fostered more kindly feelings, and prompted more positive acts of beneficence than can be traced to all the pulpits and confessionals in Christendom since last year's Christmas. End quote. Again, these are quotes from Forster and his 1875 biography of Dickens. Thackeray, the novelist, wrote to Dickens about A Christmas Carol as well. Who can listen to objections regarding such a book as this? He wrote, It seems to me a national benefit, and to every man or woman who reads it, a personal kindness. (laughs) What a great letter to write to a fellow novelist. Every man or woman who reads it, it's a personal kindness. It's like you wrote this just for them. It's a national benefit. 230 pounds, 1,000 pounds, whatever, dude. (laughs) You did it. Forster says, quote, Such praise expressed what men of genius felt and said, but the small volume had other tributes, less usual and not less genuine. These poured upon its author daily, all through that Christmas time, Letters from complete strangers to him, which I remember reading with a wonder of pleasure, not literary at all, but of the simplest domestic kind, of which the general burden was to tell him, amid many confidences about their homes, how the carol had come to be read aloud there, and was to be kept upon a little shelf by itself, and was to do them all no end of good. Anything more to be said of it will not add much to this. End quote. I just got chills reading that. Imagine Dickens in his misery, glad that it's sold, frustrated by the money that wasn't coming in, and yet getting this flood of letters from people who had read A Christmas Carol aloud in their family and were going to keep the book on a little shelf by itself. Mm. Mr. Dickens. Back to Forrester. There was indeed nobody that had not some interest in the message of the Christmas carol. It told the selfish man to rid himself of selfishness, the just man to make himself generous, and the good-natured man to enlarge the sphere of his good nature. Its cheery voice of faith and hope, ringing from one end of the island to the other, carried pleasant warning alike to all, that if the duties of Christmas were wanting— no good could come of its outward observances, that it must shine upon the cold hearth and warm it, and into the sorrowful heart and comfort it, that it must be kindness, benevolence, charity, mercy, and forbearance, or its plum pudding would turn to bile, and its roast beef be indigestible. Nor could any man have said it with the same appropriateness as Dickens. What was marked in him to the last was manifest now. He had identified himself with Christmas fancies, its life and spirits, its humor and riotous abundance of right belonged to him. Its imaginations as well as kindly thoughts were his, and its privilege to light up with some sort of comfort the squalidest places he had made his own. Christmas Day was not more social or welcome, New Year's Day not more new, Twelfth Night not more full of characters. The duty of diffusing enjoyment had never been taught by a more abundant, mirthful, thoughtful, ever-seasonable writer, end quote. 
I'm going to keep going here. Forster talks about the other Christmas books that Dickens wrote, and he gets at something that really interests me. The way that some authors, can I make one more musical analogy? This is to Nirvana. Dave Grohl talking about Kurt Cobain and the songs that he wrote. And Dave Grohl, who of course turned out to be a song songwriter himself, as we see in the Foo Fighters. But in Nirvana, he was the drummer playing on Cobain's songs. And looking back, he said, Kurt's songs are like nursery rhymes. And he meant this as a compliment. He was quick to add that. It's like Bob Dylan writing songs that sound like they're a hundred years old. Songs that sound like classics or standards. I watched Sound of Music the other night. Another guilty pleasure. Edelweiss is like this. You think that must have been around forever. It wasn't. It was written by Rodgers and Hammerstein, but it sounds like it's folk music. Just like folk tales, the simple, even the primitive stories, time-tested, stories that have been told and retold like songs that have been sung and resung until they become as smooth as those rocks at the start of tourist caves, timeless and yet smooth. Those rocks at the start of tourist caves, I mean the ones that visitors are encouraged to lay their hand on as they pass by, and they've turned a chunk of granite into something that feels softer than marble. Butter-like rocks. A rock you could almost imagine wearing like a pair of socks. Clothing is like this, too. An old flannel shirt. Smooth and worn, elemental, natural, and organic. That's what a Christmas carol is like. That's what the story is like with these three ghosts. Four ghosts, of course, counting Marley, but three ghosts, past, present, future. The story of it, just the the symmetry of it, the perfection of it, the timelessness. Here's Forster. Quote, something also is to be said of the spirit of the book and of the others that followed it, which will not anticipate special allusions to be made hereafter. No one was more intensely fond than Dickens of old nursery tales, and he had a secret delight in feeling that he was here only giving them a higher form. The social and manly virtues he desired to teach were to him not less the charm of the ghost, the goblin, and the fairy fancies of his childhood however rudely set forth in those earlier days. What now were to be conquered were the more formidable dragons and giants, which had their places at our own hearths, and the weapons to be used were of a finer than the ice brook's temper. With brave and strong restraints, what is evil in ourselves was to be subdued. With warm and gentle sympathies, what is bad or unreclaimed in others was to be redeemed. The beauty was to embrace the beast." as in the divinest of all those fables. The star was to rise out of the ashes, as in our much-loved Cinderella, and we were to play the valentine with our wilder brothers and bring them back with brotherly care to civilization and happiness. Nor is it to be doubted, I think, that in the largest sense of benefit, great public and private service was done, positive, earnest, practical good, by the extraordinary popularity and nearly universal acceptance which attended these little holiday volumes. They carried to countless firesides, with new enjoyment of the season, better apprehension of its claims and obligations. They mingled grave with glad thoughts, much to the advantage of both. What seemed almost too remote to meddle with, they brought within reach of charities. And what was near, they touched with a dearer tenderness. They comforted the generous, rebuked the sordid, 
cured folly by kindly ridicule and comic humor, and saying to their readers, Thus you have done, but it were better. Thus may, for some, have realized the philosopher's famous experience, and by a single fortunate thought revised the whole manner of a life. Criticism here is a second-rate thing, and the reader may be spared such discoveries as it might have made in regard to the Christmas Carol. End quote. And here's how the story ends, the very ending of A Christmas Carol. Once again, we can hear Dickens. You know, you've probably seen this a million times. You've seen Scrooge watching Tiny Tim saying, God bless us, everyone. And a lot of productions have Scrooge there in the room celebrating Christmas dinner with the family. But Dickens ends it at the office with Bob Cratchit with a nice twist. Here's how it ends. But he was early at the office next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late, that was the thing he had set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. He was full 18 minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the tank. His hat was off before he opened the door, his comforter too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello, growled Scrooge in his accustomed voice, as near as he could feign it. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I am very sorry, sir, said Bob. I am behind my time. You are? repeated Scrooge. Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please. It's only once a year, sir, pleaded Bob, appearing from the tank. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now I'll tell you what, my friend, said Scrooge. I'm not going to stand this sort of thing any longer, and therefore, he continued, leaping from his stool and giving Bob such a dig in the waistcoat that he staggered back into the tank again, and therefore, I'm about to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him, and calling to the people in the court for help and a straight waistcoat. A Merry Christmas, Bob, said Scrooge with an earnestness that could not be mistaken as he clapped him on the back. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavor to assist your struggling family, and we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop, Bob. Make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more, and to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe, for good, at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset, and knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes in grins, as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards, and it was always said of him, 
that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Look at that look at the character of Scrooge. It was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well. Everything essential comes from within. Nothing is from the majesty of God or the approval of others. He knew how to keep Christmas well. He knew. He knew how to keep Christmas well. It's a challenge to all of us. It's not something we should wait around for others to do. We should keep Christmas well. And I suppose I can extend that to non-Christmas too. Let's universalize it. Whatever our traditions, whatever our beliefs, if it's Christmas that raises that bar, then great, but it could be another holiday. It could be family. It could be love for our sweet partners in life. It could be nostalgia and sentiment. It could be empathy or compassion. It could be charity. It could be decency. It could be kindness. It could be hope. Whatever that is in us that is good or potentially good, we should keep it well. When we die, let our graves not say mean man. Let people say there was a person who kept good things well. It's not the cool thing to do. It's not ironic. It can look hopelessly naive. It can seem like there's no point. We can look ridiculous, running around like fools, believing in goodness, trying to be good, trying to foster good, trying to promote good, trying to help. Who cares? Let the cynics laugh at our attitude if they wish. Our hearts will be laughing too. And that is everything. Mm, Okay, there we go. Thank you so much for joining me today. I was very glad to have you here. Ebenezer Scrooge and Charles Dickens. What a treat that has been to spend some time with those two. Just like this year has been a treat. Spending time with my family and with all of you. I'm dusting off these old cobwebs that have circumscribed my heart. People, I'm in a little cave down here toiling away. More Cratchit than Scrooge, frankly. But that doesn't mean I can't transform myself in some positive way. I hope this season you find a way to transform yourself too. Unless you don't need to. As I suspect that many of you don't. Like my Patreons. (laughs) your hearts based on your emails to me even those of you who are not supporters but are just fans of the show or just kindly souls who send me emails you seem like the best people in the world already and here I am bah humbugging my way through the year complaining about Twitter please do forgive me Forgive your old Christmas Saurus. I have a walnut-sized brain. What can I say? Let's do our best to turn the corner for next year, which we will see filled with grace and light. And so will we be filled with grace and light. And we are part of Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate here at the History of Literature Podcast. Learn more at www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.